0: This is so not my personality, but I'm going to quote Shakespeare right now. It's from The Tempest, and this really resonated with me. The past is prologue, which to me, I mean, I don't know what the hell it meant in during Shakespeare, but to me, it means that your past, your your lived experience informs every aspect of your present and subsequently your future. So learning from that and acting and pushing forward, no matter what the obstacle may be in just recognizing that you, you can do anything that you want to. You may have to approach something differently, but you can.
1: That's David Jevitowski. With three years of med school already under his belt, David is currently in his MBA year of an MD MBA program at New York University. He's also a brain injury survivor. Today, you'll hear that part of his story. It's an incredible one. David has been an inspiration to me in my own brain injury recovery, and I've invited him on to share his insights into resilience, both in life and in school. On today's episode, David will share his traumatic brain injury, or TBI, story. We will then discuss the importance of knowing when to ask for help, how to adapt your learning style through trial and error, and some of the lessons he's learned through his recovery. My name is Sarah Remberg. I'm a senior in the LSA Honors Program at the University of Michigan, and this is How to Student, a show where we explore all the things that make college so stressful and help students just like you be successful. Tell me about your your TVI story.
0: Life was all going swimmingly. I like to, when I talk about it, I like to say that I was just invincible. I thought I was invincible. Which I feel like most people in this age group, I was 23, 24, um, kind of carry themselves that way, which is great because it's protecting most people from the reality of the world. But I was living in this invincibility complex. I was two months into my second year of medical school. I was hanging out with my friends, you know, still studying to become a doctor, but going out on the weekends and having a great time traveling, going to concerts. But I went for a bike ride one Sunday. I was really excited. I was like, no studying that day. I'm just going to take advantage of it. And I'm going to go for a nice uh, bike ride. The sun was shining. It was awesome. And then that was the last thing that I remember. The next thing that I kind of remember is indistinct because I was heavily sedated and on many, many drugs. I was in the hospital. People ask me all the time, what, what was the first thing you remember? And I don't, I don't have one memory, but I do have many, many early memories of being in the hospital, being disoriented, and having apparently people told me many, many times, had to explain what happened to me that I was hit by a car while, while biking across Manhattan without a helmet which is not a smart idea, kids. No one thinks it's going to happen to you. Like, I'm not, I'm. why would I wear a helmet? Like, it's annoying. I don't look as cool. Uh, like, there's all, all these factors that are playing into it. And if you just think, well, nothing's going to happen to me, I'm fine. And that's just not the case. Because every once in a million, you end up in the intensive care unit, getting brain surgery uh, on the brink of death. I'll just wear the helmet from now on. Learn my lesson. Sort
1: of describe, if you can, just sort of what those first couple of months in, in rehabilitation
0: look like. I was in a coma for several weeks. I lost the ability to walk, to talk and to eat because I was also intubated. I had to relearn how to do all those things. The walking came very slowly, you know. They put a bed alarm to make sure you don't try to leave the bed. You have to walk with a nurse at all times until you graduate and get some special status to walk alone, which is a thrilling experience when you're in your mid-20s and you have to be babysat at all times.
1: To do the Um, nice neon, uh, neon hold belt, like the neon thing that they put around your waist.
0: I did not, <laughs> but that Uh-oh. sounds super cool. Uh-huh. I wish yeah. I did. The talking came pretty quickly. That was like once I had woken up in the ICU before I had re- gone to rehab, I had, they had to slowly wean me from being intubated with a tube down my throat to taking that out to putting a trache, tracheostomy in to then transitioning that to a speaking valve so I could practice speaking speech therapy, all the occupational therapy, physical therapy, all that kind of stuff. Everything kind of slowly came back, but you have this intensive therapy for Mm -hmm. when you're inpatient rehab for at least three hours a day. And then outpatient, I had each session at least, I think for twice a week for some of them in the beginning. And then slowly they decrease it and decrease it and decrease it until they think you're okay.
1: When I first got hurt, there was a disconnect between what I thought I could do and what I could actually do. At first, I thought I would hop right back into sports, school, and the rest of my life, despite not being able to read or even stand for longer than a few minutes. When I did try going back to school, I struggled. I completely lost my self-confidence. I had to learn to be patient with myself and navigate my new world. I wanted to see if David experienced the same thing.
0: So one of my first memories was in the, in, in the ICU. And I remember my my dean came all the time and she was there and I was I was telling everyone, you know, like, I'm I'm just going to hop right back in. I'm going to I'd missed about a a month at that point. I was like, and which equates to two tests. So I was saying, I'll just watch all the recorded lectures. I'll catch up. I'll study and I'll take the test and I'll be back and I'm just going to hop right back in. I remember the dean looking at me and being like, David, like, okay, like, let's just take it one step at a time, which looking back means you crazy. Like you're straight crazy <laughs> that you think that you can, you have the ability to do that. Um, the the other thing that, you know, you asked me about rehab in the months after, so you have to relearn to walk and to talk and to eat. But like the, the major thing is to relearn how to think and to retrain your brain, how to learn and how to retain information and how to apply that knowledge to navigate your environment, again, all over.
1: So what was the hardest part of recovering?
0: The hardest part for me is that it just doesn't ever end, I feel like. I've learned that trauma sticks with you. It's it's kind of this undertone to my whole life. In a lot of regards, an extremely positive way, I wouldn't want it any other way. I think I'm a better person. I think I navigate the world in a better way. I think I have... More mindful interactions with people. And I think I'm kinder and I have more value to add to the world and like that I'm here for a reason. But also there's this very daunting undertone at all times and everything I do that is trauma. It just underlies everything. And think, think about me still living in New York City and I'm seeing all these people bike around all the time on city bikes without helmets, which is exactly what happened to me and while each person individually isn't causing me too much distress i think that a lot of these little things keep building up and building up and building up and then all of a sudden every couple months it need that that tension needs to be released and that usually comes in the form of crying out of nowhere which is a huge change and that's really difficult to deal with like honestly last night this happened I was watching TV and I just started like tearing, and then I was like, "Oh shit, here we go again." And then it's over, and I just like need to go like hug someone or something, and I cried out for a little bit. And it's like I don't have trouble sleeping that night at all. It's just it's it shows that it really never leaves you, the subconscious thing. It's very hard to describe. I, I'm not I'm not ashamed of it. It's just it's just it just is.
1: Here, David brings up something key. Pain and negativity demand to be felt. It's perfectly normal to experience negative emotions and have negative thoughts. Maybe you can't shake an argument you've had with a friend, or the fact that you totally bombed an assignment. Maybe it stems from just watching the news these days. It's human to not be okay all the time. When you do experience negative thoughts or overwhelming emotion, it's important to feel it, to talk about it with someone you trust, and if you aren't quite comfortable talking, you can write. You'll be amazed how much better you'll feel when you don't just keep things bottled up. I next wanted to talk to David about his return to school. What was it like to return to school after everything?
0: It was a strange, strange dynamic because I actually was cared for at the hospital that I was training at. So that was odd. To speak of returning to school academically, I had like a couple more months of classroom work to finish before I entered, you know, rotations in the clinical setting. So those were really hard. I remember the first test I took. I had an I had a straight up panic attack in the middle of it. Like my my heart started racing, I started breathing faster and I like needed to leave and go to the dean's office to just like take a breather and take a break and just get a little perspective and realize that I can do it and that maybe it takes longer or maybe it takes or I have to approach questions differently. Or I, at that point, I feel like I needed to talk them out loud slowly. I adapted, but le- needed to learn to like ask for help. Actually, that was the moment where I recognized, hey, maybe I'm not the same person academically as I was a couple months ago. And it's okay to ask for help and to now need extra time on tests. That's totally fine. Just gives me proper access to the education and my career.
1: What would some of your suggestions be to someone who needed to adapt the way they learn?
0: I would just say it's 100% a trial and error experience, right? At one point, I needed to physically read aloud the question stems to help me process. I needed to be in, in a room alone at a certain point or just take a lot of breaks and things like that. But that I find will be completely individualized. So it's just being open and willing to try new things and for them not to work and to then recognize when things aren't working. What's crucial to that process is self self-advocacy, advocating for yourself. I find that you can struggle alone and most people do, but oftentimes there's a solution out there that either you don't realize or you're afraid to ask for. But if you can get over that, that hump and ask for help or check out what resources you have, you may find that there's a much easier and better way for you to do whatever the task may be.
1: Did you ever find that having to adjust your ways you know, led to some feelings of inadequacy. <laughs>
0: 100%. We love self-doubt. That's just a part of it. I mean, I feel like that's kind of my personality now <laughs> in a certain regard. All the time I was questioning, why, why am I doing this? Can I do this? For me, I found that, you know, through actually meditation really helped me believe in myself and say, yes, I can. I can do this and I I am doing this.
1: What have you learned from this process that you think would be useful for the average college student? Because we don't want everyone to get brain injuries in order to become better people. Because I too believe that I'm a much better person because of my experience.
0: There's a couple things, Sarah. One of the first things that I would think about is you know, I've talked a little bit about how that this underlying idea of trauma in my life and how it's like overwhelmingly good, but there's also a little bit bad and the way that i kind of put that into other words is that pain is inevitable but suffering is a choice so everyone's going to experience pain in their life whether whether it's failing a test or getting having their partner break up with them or i don't know just not getting the who knows like not booking the right flight or something like that that's adding a lot of annoyance and pain but you know taking it to the next step and actually choosing to suffer is a whole nother idea. Recognize that it sucks, but you can also learn from it and move on and become, have like a more meaningful experience moving forward. So that's one thing. Another thing is you just never know what another person is going through. Someone, so again, someone can do something that's annoying you. But you have no idea what's going on in their lives that may prompt them to act that way or say that certain thing. So, just recognizing that and taking, adding that little perspective to your life as you navigate all your interactions, I find to be helpful. Not everything is the way it seems. Clinically, it's interesting because I like to think about one of my first experiences back to medicine. I was working with a hand surgeon. And in clinic, we saw lots of Upper East Side grandmas, Upper East Side moms who had arthritis in their fingers. And this was months after I had recovered, like gotten out of the hospital and, you know, started relearn to walk and gain some sense of independence again. So I'm seeing these patients Complaining of arthritis in their fingers as if it was the worst thing in the world, as if they had just gotten hit by a car two days ago. And I'm sitting on the other side of the medical counter being like, What are you saying, woman? Like, how, like, I can't believe it's causing you this much pain. Like, don't you think there are worse things that are happening in the world? Like, other people that are in more pain? Or, hey, man, like, I know your fingers hurt, but my head hurts and my brain hurts or whatever it is. And that was a very present dialogue in my brain. But then shortly thereafter comes the idea that, hey, that is their pain. And that's what's important to them. Period. You know, like full stop right there. If that is what's causing them so much pain, then that is what it's, what's important. They're thankful That that doesn't mean that they're not thankful that, you know, for the rest of their life or maybe I don't know what's going on in the rest of their life. Uh, So, again, just that added perspective, I think, or I hope.
1: One of the things that you always talk about, which I'd like you to touch on, is this notion that there's resilience in connection. I think that's something that can apply to everyone.
0: Quite simply, I could not be where I am without all of the people that have supported me in my life. And sometimes maybe they they're not supporting you the way that you want to, uh, but regardless, I do think that they're providing some value and lesson maybe to how you want to direct your future life. You know, whether it was my family who was there consistently after my accident, or my friends that were reaching out to me. You know, they fundraise money for my parents and things like that. But to really not only have to try to build a support network. But also maintaining it, and then knowing when you can leverage these positive relationships. If you need to ask for help, or if you need to tell them, "Hey, you know, I need a little bit more." Like, "Hey, I'm not okay. Is it okay if I wake you up in the middle of the night to just like for a hug or something like that?" You know, that's okay. And if if they're if they're okay with that, so be it. And I think that's helped me immensely. Just asking and being honest with the people in my life and asking for help when I need it. Because lots of times I know my friends, I feel like they assume that everything's just back to normal, that I'm the same person that I was three years ago. But that simply isn't the case because neither are they.
1: I met David through Love Your Brain, which is an amazing organization that supports people affected by TBI. One thing they do is teach meditation as a way to foster resilience, manage stress, and improve one's quality of life. Adding mindfulness and meditation to my life has been a game changer. I wish I had known about it earlier. In any situation where I feel overwhelmed, I can return to my breath and find calm. Mindfulness looks different for everyone, so I asked David to share his take.
0: So Love Your Brain taught me about mindfulness and meditation. I used to, if you asked me pre-injury about like yoga meditation stuff, I would have said it was the biggest bullshit ever. I never believed in any of it. I didn't have the patience with it. My mind was racing too much, but now I could not be more of a support. There was a time where I try to like one month per year meditate every night, but I'll usually do it on an as needed basis for me personally to calm my mind. And really just focus on being present. Usually in times of stress, it really helps me just clear my mind. It helps me go to bed. So that's why I do it at night.
1: By now, you probably think David is pretty awesome. And he is. But you're about to hear just how incredible and resilient he can be. Why don't you tell me about the marathon and the the crazy plan of yours?
0: Oh, Jesus. Okay, <laughs> so I was in reha- inpatient rehab. I went back home from New York City to Rochester, so my parents could be closer to home, and I could be closer to my extended family. And I I remember my uncle coming to visit me, and he was leaving. He was saying goodbye because he would he was going to New York for a week because he was going to run the New York City Marathon, uh, and he was going he was going David next next year, you know, you're joining me. It's going to be me and you. (laughs) I go, okay, sure. Uncle Eli. Like (laughs) like, at this point, I can't walk alone on without a nurse. I have an alarm on my bed and I can't get out without it beeping like crazy and having 10 nurses rush down. I'm like, okay, like, sure. You know, fast forward a couple months, I was in Florida with my mother and I was like checking my email one night and I got like a, I got one of my emails saying, congratulations, you are accepted to the 2018 New York City marathon. And I just laughed. I just could not stop laughing. And I was like, what is going on in there? <laughs> and I told her and I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing this now. So I, you know, just started training very, very slowly at first, you know, mile by mile. For several months until I could get up to like you know twenty miles, twenty one miles. The day came and I ran it about a year and two months after my accident, which was pretty awesome. It was a really cool experience. But just one quick story from the marathon. You know, I was really pushing it. I was really booking it. Seven seven minute fifteen second miles for like twenty miles, and then I was like, okay, by twenty miles, I started slow down to like. Eight, eight and a half minutes for like four miles and then it hit mile 24 and I start feeling a little woozy I'm like shit at this point I'm hyper aware of my, my my health of course after the accident you become hyper aware of everything I'm like I don't I'm so close I'm two miles from the damn finish line and I feel like I need to slow down more so I slow down a little bit more I slow down and I, I finally get, get to the point where I'm still dizzy and I need to walk feel like I have to walk a couple steps. And then I actually kind of lost my footing. So I was so dizzy and fell a little bit into the, the sidelines of people. They're like, yo, you need to go to the medical tent. There's one right up there. So they walked me there and I sat there for 30 minutes, which was really upsetting at the time. But, you know, who cares? Uh, I took a 30 minute break, but finished, finished strong. But yeah, I did that. That was pretty wild. So never doing that ever again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I think there's a lesson to be said for knowing when it's okay to take a break, to take a pause, and that, that story is still an incredible success story, regardless of you know taking a little bit longer time to cross the finish line. And now the question I ask all of my guests, what would you tell your freshman year college self?
0: Oh, Jesus. Wear a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Episode 6 of How to Student. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to share and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram using the handle at Podcast for more college tips, episode announcements, and behind-the-scenes content. On this episode, David and Sarah mentioned the Love Your Brain Foundation. You can learn more about this fantastic organization and explore their meditation library at loveyourbrain.com. This episode was created and produced by Sarah Renberg. Special thanks to Michelle Gelling, our social media coordinator, and Mika Levek manti the project advisor. This has been a presentation of Packard Street Productions.